Slate Plus members get early access to our TV Club podcasts about Better Call Saul immediately following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you want early access, sign up at slate.com slash Plus. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of Better Call Saul we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Lights start a blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. You'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul. I'm June Thomas. I'm the editor of Slate's Outward blog. And I'm here with Seth Stevenson. Hey, Seth. Hey, June. Today, we're going to talk about episode eight, which was called Rico. Seth, this was an amazing episode. But before we get to it, we had some, a lot, in fact, of listener mail. Piles and piles of listener mail. Well, piles. emails and thus virtual and then not really. They don't actually pile. But they did fill our inbox, which is podcasts at slate.com. So we had asked last week, we issued a listener challenge, in fact. We did. Which was at the very beginning of last week's episode, the camera panned down across these wanted posters, these little wanted posters in the police department um, before the camera panned down to Jimmy's face. And we said, oh, I bet, I bet, given Vince Gilligan's attention to detail, that one of the faces in these wanted posters, one of these criminals, is somewhere else in the Breaking Bad universe. And indeed, many listeners emailed in to tell us that they felt that the third wanted poster we see as the camera pans down, which is a man with a sort of buzz cut hairdo and then a big bushy beard, a tough looking guy, his name is Robert Sanchez, according to the wanted poster, shows up later on in the bathroom of the diner when Jimmy is making a phone call. He's at the urinal, this guy, and then he turns around, does not wash his hands, as as at least one listener, in fact, pointed out, (laughs) bumps into Jimmy, and Jimmy kind of gives him a little look, and this guy walks out of the bathroom, and this guy, he, he does look remarkably like the fellow identified as Robert Sanchez wanted for auto theft uh, in that wanted poster. Uh, and, and so. Yeah, and our, um, the Slate ma- podcast managing editor, Joel Meyer, who's also our producer, he did some screenshotting. So they'll also be on our page for the episode eight of Better Call Saul podcast, TV Club. June, I, just, I want listeners to know that it, it took me 17 hours to make those screen grabs. <laughs> That's all. That is dedication to appreciate it, Joel. Vince Gilligan would approve yeah. of your attention of your attention to detail. Um, yeah, I feel, I'm still I'm like eighty twenty ninety ten on this. I mean, I think the the guy they look pretty similar, and I bet given given who we're dealing with here, probably they are the same guy, which is funny. Um, so thank you, listeners. Challenge uh, met. Well done. And later in the show, we're going to tell you about another Easter egg hidden in the series. So. Uh, be ready for that. <laughs> we also got email that helped us with another question that we had, I guess, last week, which was why HHM would be upset about losing the Kettlemans when they had no money and therefore there was no big payday coming along. And several people pointed out that it's a matter of pride for Hamlin especially, that he doesn't want to lose any clients, especially not to Jimmy. But most of all, this is the kind of case that results in a televised press conference, as we saw in episode 108. And so Hamlin, it wouldn't be a rational thing about money and income. It would just be a pride and ego thing, which makes sense given Hamlin's hideosity. Sure. And all all media is good media, as we Mm -hmm. know, and it is a newsworthy case. So that's a a fair point. And one other listener email that I wanted 
to get to. This is from Andy Fleming, and I thought it was sort of sweet. The subject of the email is the heart of it. And we had talked um, about why was Jimmy so upset at the uh, at the end of the previous episode where he was on the floor of his newly rented law office with the plate glass windows, and he closes the door, and he's kicking the door, and he's just really gutted. And we were talking about why that was. And so uh, listener Andy Fleming says, well, the object of his affection doesn't share his dream of work and life together. Kim just doesn't think about him the way he thinks about her, and Jimmy realizes it. It is an absolutely devastating moment. And yet, Jimmy still does the right thing on her behalf at great personal risk by developing and executing a brilliant scheme to get the Kettlemans to return to her. What a guy. He's caring and actually brilliant and flawed, too. He has an enormous heart, and he longs to connect at a more soulful level with Kim and his work and his brother, but such soulful connection eludes him, partly because of his own flaws, partly because the people around him are trapped by their own flaws and self-protective patterns. No one really sees Jimmy in his full humanity and loves him for who he is. And, uh, you know, and uh, Andy says it's all there in that corner office scene. So uh, interesting. I love when people yeah. uh, get to the heart of it all. Uh, now I'm, you know, I'm I'm getting a little teary. I want to kick. I, I want to kick the door of our podcast booth because I can't connect with everyone on the soulful level. I would like to. I know, and I really, I, I, I my heart breaks for Jimmy on a regular basis. I mean, that is has really been an, an amazing achievement of Better Call Saul. He's an he's an incredibly sympathetic character. The more we get to know him, the more I think about it because he's struggling to do the right thing. He has this uh, wonderful woman who, for whatever reason, we're learning more about their backstory, but for whatever reason, he can't seem to lock her down, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and yet he's got he's flawed, and so we relate to him. You know, he's got temptations, mm-hmm. and and he's not always perfect, and he's a little bit mischievous, and uh, and so he is a, he is a very relatable character. Well, let's talk about the relationship with Kim because, as you said, we saw a lot of backstory, we got a lot of fill in, and I was really, I don't know, fascinated by by what we the the glimpses that we got, especially in the cold open, where we saw Jimmy's. Um, the, when we saw how Jimmy became a lawyer, which was that he essentially did it, I clearly Kim was part of his scheme. Or scheme is not right, but she knew what was going on. She supportive, supportive. She was supportive, whereas he kept it a complete secret from Chuck, which was an amazing achievement because not only did he have to finish up his undergraduate degree at the community college, which he taught us is not just for um, draft dodgers and yoga classes. <laughs> Then he got his law degree at the University of American Samoa. Which we saw before. I, I Go fighting land crabs is what you want me to it's say. What, it's I'm exactly sure what I want you to we say. We saw, if you'll recall, earlier in the nail salon late night with Kim when they were doing their, their little home DIY mani-pedis, <laughs> he was wearing an America Samoa oh. sweatshirt, I remember. Easter egg. Easter egg. Yes. So go land crabs. And, and then he... So he completely surprised Chuck. And Chuck's response, because he was still very much, you know, the senior partner, the the very respected attorney at that point. At first, it seemed that Chuck was like, hmm, is this a joke? He was a little bit, I don't know, bristling. Then he was impressed. Then he, you know, when Jimmy asked for a job, he was kind of, well, if it were up to me, of course, look what you've done. And then there was that devastating scene with Hamlin. And again, done sort of like... Like it was sort of like how the computer in two thousand one, where we can't hear what they're saying and we're trying to read their lips, and yeah. like we all we hear is the copy machine, and but we know what's going on. Exactly, and and it, which was great in many ways, not only to set up the you know another reason to hate Hamlin, but also 
this obsession with real estate, which is clear is a thing in law offices, you know, that, that prestige and ego is, you know, we saw again Kim moving offices because she's back from the back 40 or whatever it was. And, you know, Jimmy's office was the mailroom. And, you know, Hamlin even said at the end, do you want the door open or closed? Just like you would, you know, with your fancy boss's office when you've had a sit down together. Right. Yeah. And Kim's back from the cornfield. Um, so, but June. Yes. They, he plants one on her. Jimmy, mailroom worker Jimmy, plants one on Kim. Who wouldn't want to plant one on the woman who wants to take you to see John Carpenter movies on Thursday <laughs> nights? And he, they, I mean, that that was a real, clearly, they were, I w- I'm going to say, sexually active. Well, here's the thing. It's funny that you said he planted one on her because I was surprised that she planted a big one on him. She, I mean, it was so, the volition was so much from her. She was astonished. I mean, she was, I don't know, astonished makes it sound like she didn't think he could. She was very happy. She was full of sincere joy, and she planted one on him. And yet, it's hard to deny that. They were knocking boots. And now we know they're still in their relationship. They still have a lot of respect and affection for each other that we see, but they do not appear to be a couple. And so we'll, we'll, well, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very modern couple because we know that she does invite him to go to see John Carpenter movies, which... You know, that's something, right? Are but, they yeah, boyfriend, girlfriend? I don't. I mean, they don't seem to spend time in each other's apartments, certainly not overnighters. Yeah, not well, that we've seen anyway. It's a very, it's an adult relationship. These are, you know, yeah. this is some adult adult stuff, June. This and is like grown-up problems. Very adult. I'll tell you, there's two things, that, that two more things I want to say about this. The first is that I was also really saddened. I kind of, again, my heart broke for Jimmy when something you know when what we'll i'm sure get to a little bit later but when he and chuck start you know make this connection they're so excited they're gonna you know take on this big case and he needs some westlaw information from kim and he she and jimmy gives her chuck's code and kim is kind of mm, she's very cold to that it's like you know and the the reason that she's cold is that she's kind of protecting her firm. So she's choosing the firm over Jimmy, which felt she didn't come right out for it. And she did do the research, but it did again seem like she was choosing HHM over Jimmy. Well, she's got, a, you know, things to protect. She's got her livelihood. She's she got a two-year plan. Yeah. I'm also, June, this reminds me, the, yeah. co- the issue of the code. I'm going to issue another listener challenge. So yes. we know that Howard Hamlin's code is 1933, which is the year that Hitler came to power, (laughs) as Jimmy tells us. But Chuck's code was 1868. Listeners, what is the significance? We know there must be a significance. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing. 1868, what can it mean? How does it relate to Chuck and the show at large? I also want to make a bold prediction, which is that the very last shot of Better Call Saul, you know, in the end of season 13, will be Jimmy, Saul, and Kim reuniting. This is not a theory. There's no evidence. It's pure wish fulfillment on my part or pure uh, soul longing that I bet that everything that, that Saul Goodman does is, is in some way built on maintaining the protection of Kim. And so I see them getting together 25 years down the road. Wow. Mark it down, listeners, and hold her to it. Do you think, like, in Omaha, she's going to show up at the Cinnabon at the counter and, like, give me four Cinnabons, please, sir? Don't try and, and pin me down, Seth. He's going to look up, and suddenly it dawns on him that it's Kim. And... Maybe. So, Seth, one of our favorite scenes this week, which we're going to hear audio from, was 
just so emblematic of Jimmy's willingness to throw himself into a case. He is like a dog with a bone when he gets a scent. And this was really a brilliant piece of investigation. It reminded me of the kind of reporting that is every journalist's, you know, ideal, where he was going about his business, which is pretty humble business, and he picked up on something because of his big heart, and then he followed it up, and it could be a huge case. It should be a huge case. We'll see if it if it pans out. But because he needed more information and he was shut out of the Sandpiper Crossing homes, he tried to find the evidence in the trash and he threw himself into the trash can. Yes, he's not above jumping into a dumpster. In his white suit. In his Matlock suit, in his summer poplin suit, if it means possibly uncovering evidence that's going to help these poor, exploited senior citizens. What a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and later on, a couple of things about this. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, uh, he later on pieces together the shredded things, much like in Argo, the small Irani children <laughs> piece together the shredded documents from the U.S. Embassy. I noted that, wow. that they, they, like they, they kind of the way they take those ribbons and push them together. I noticed that from Argo. Secondly, I just want to point this out because his opposition lawyer in this, like the the, the sort of like slick big time lawyer he's up against, uh, seemed familiar familiar to me. And it turns out he's been in like Law and Order, SVU, and all yeah. sorts of other things. However, he was in one episode of Matlock. Oh my. Worlds colliding. (laughs) But June. Yes. Well, June, as you said, he's not above throwing himself into the dumpster, nor is he above, in fact, answering his mobile phone inside the dumpster. Not only does he in the dumpster, he also has his receptionist in there with him. James McGill. Mr. McGill, Rich Schweikert of Schweikert and Coakley. We're the law firm representing Sandpiper Crossing Assisted Living. How are you this evening? Quite well, thank you. How are you? Doing fine. Doing fine. Sorry to call so late. Did I catch you at a bad time? No, 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 it's fine. It's just that you're whispering. I'm at the opera. Oh, what opera? Magic flute. Mozart. Lovely. Well, I'll try not to keep Well, in addition to being hugely entertaining, this scene raises, I feel, June, some issues of legal ethics. Is it okay? to dumpster dive for documents. And this, there's a little bit of back and forth between Jimmy and his and that slick opposition lawyer about whether that was a, there were evidentiary problems there. But we don't need to theorize. Don't. We can talk to a legal expert. And so we are now going to call... Nicole Highland, who is not only a listener of the Slate TV Club Better Call Saul podcast, but also a New York-based ethics lawyer at Frankfurt Kernet. Klein and Sells, and she also has a blog called The Ethics of Better Call Saul, which we'll link to on our podcast notes. Hi, June. Hi, Seth. Hey, Hi, Nicole. Nicole. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I, I'm a big fan. Nicole hasn't seen episode eight, but uh, we will try not to spoil anything for her. Or not spoil it too terribly. <laughs> exactly. Nicole, hypothetically, were a lawyer to be rummaging around in a dumpster outside of uh, a person that they are investigating or might be filing a lawsuit against. Would that, in your legal, uh, ethical opinion, be kosher or not? Kosher. Well, I, my understanding of the law on that is that once you throw something out into a dumpster, 
it is no longer your property. And so I don't see an ethical problem with a lawyer rummaging around in a dumpster for something that's been discarded. That's exactly the argument that Jimmy McGill exactly. made. Exactly. And I love he had actually a beautiful line, which was, you can't say it's private if a hobo can use it as a wigwam. <laughs> sort of if an animal or a vagrant can get into it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we want to ask you about some of the... Um, iconic ethical moments in the, in the series. So one of them that everyone remembers is the coffee spill, where Jimmy has been enlisted by Mike to spill some coffee on a cop during um, an interrogation or during a questioning that, where Jimmy is representing Mike. So what are the ethics of that? If I am an attorney, am I allowed to spill coffee on a policeman to aid my client? Uh, no. The answer to that <laughs> is no. I talk about that in, uh, in my recent blog post, and I... Uh, Fight to a number. I, and uh, as an aside, otherwise in that uh, interview, I think Jimmy does a great job representing Mike. But in the end, when he spills the coffee, uh, that definitely would violate several ethical rules. And I talk about that. There's a rule that says you can't engage in illegal conduct, uh, which aiding and abetting someone in stealing another person's property, I think, would qualify. There's a rule uh, that says you, uh, a lawyer, is prohibited from engaging in conduct that's prejudicial to the administration of justice, which would include, you know, any type of obstruction of justice, which I think would probably include stealing a police officer's notebook with the notes of his uh, criminal investigation. So that's a no-no. Nicole, I was very interested in a lot of your writing about advertising, because that's, ah. that's a really big theme in this show. We've seen a, a lot even of the opening credit sequences have ads that Jimmy or later Saul has done. And in fact, in that very iconic cold open in the first episode, he looked at his a v- VHS of his old Saul Goodman ad. So advertising as a lawyer is a big theme for Saul. But you pointed out that that's actually relatively controversial in the world of the law. It is. It is. Uh, um, you know, back in the old days, and I'm generalizing, all lawyer advertising was, was banned in, in many places. It's a state-by-state regulation, but there were, there were states that banned all advertising. And as I mentioned in, in the blog, and as in fact Chuck mentions in the episode, there was a Supreme Court case that essentially said, you know, there, there is free speech. You know, we have this, and lawyers have it too. And so you can't just flat out ban all lawyer advertising, but you can regulate it. So different states have different regulations, and some of those regulations, in my view and in the view of many, are quite silly and onerous. Some of them make sense. I mean, there's a regulation that says you can't be deceptive in your advertising. That's a a good regulation. But there are other regulations that are less sensible. And so there is a debate going on throughout the country now in different states about what you know, whether there needs to be more reform in, in the advertising rules. But when you see, like, you know, we saw in, in episode 107, uh, Jimmy's bingo card ad and his, you know, his matchbooks and all of those things. His face see- at the bottom of the jello cup. Yes, the, his face <laughs> at the bottom of the jello cup. Those seem brilliant. Are you telling me that those, those flashes of genius are maybe a little bit ethically iffy? Well, I, I review, when I analyze what Jimmy does, I do it under the New York rules. So I don't, uh, and, um, New Mexico may have different rules. Um, so I, I can only speak to New York. In New York, the Jell-O cup would definitely violate the advertising rules. In my view, it, isn't, it, is, it falls within the definition of an advertisement. 
Uh, it, it's, you know, the, and it's the inclusion of the, the slogan that makes it an advertisement because he is offering his services uh, to, the, to the person who is reading that Jell-O cup. Um, he's offering to, you know, prepare a will and he's offering for them to retain him. So that's an advertisement. And if it's an advertisement under New York's rules, uh, it has to say attorney advertising. It has to include his telephone number and principal law firm address. So it, they have, and there are other additional requirements. So he does that. There's nothing wrong with putting your ad on a Jello cup. You just have to do it in a way that complies with the rules. And Nicole, it would be so hard to get the name of the Manny Petty Salon onto that Jello cup. They're pretty small. <laughs> I know. I that's why. I mean, think about Twitter, though. I mean, yeah. a lot of these rules now that lawyers are on Twitter, um, and and there are bar committees out there trying to really grapple with. How do you fit all of the disclaimers and things that you need to put in an advertising in a tweet? And so uh, we're struggling with that with social media. Wow. Now, Jimmy has impersonated two different lawyers. At one point, he impersonated Howard Hamlin by wearing the Hamlin to go blue suit. And then later, he impersonates Matlock by putting on the summer poplins. Is it, is it kosher to impersonate another lawyer uh, to sort of to drum up business? Well... My view of the Matlock incident, and I talk about that as well, is I don't think his impersonation is so uh, so close to Matlock. He's not really pretending to be Matlock. Uh, he's sort of dressing. It's an homage. He's dressing a little bit like him. He's trying to create an image. And what I, you know, what I say in my blog, I don't see that as an ethical violation. Everybody, including lawyers, puts on a costume when they go to work. When they, when they present themselves to the public. And so Jimmy's just being very strategic about it, but I, I don't see that as an ethical violation. What about Hamlin? Because the, 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 it really seemed like he was, it, although it was mostly to aggravate Howard Hamlin, <laughs> I mean, he was, he was really being mini-me. He, he was. Uh, I, I certainly, um, you know, there, that really came down to uh, the way they dealt with that on the show was the trademark issue that he was, he was infringing on the trademark. Whether it would also be an ethical violation is probably a close call. Is it deceptive? It's probably, once you've decided it's, it's trademark infringement, I don't think it's too, too big a step to say it's also deceptive because you could be misleading the public into thinking you're affiliated with this firm that you're not affiliated with. Now, Nicole, so this whole show really, uh, in a lot of ways, is about Jimmy deciding where his ethical line is, what he's okay with and what he's not okay with, and the nature of the game for him, if he's going to be representing these criminals and meeting with them while they're still on the lam in some cases, it's, it's going to be a lot of gray areas. How do you think he's doing in general? What, you know, what, give us a sort of a global assessment of Jimmy's ethical uh, conundrum and, and, and how he has uh, just comported himself so far. You know, he, he is so trying to do the right thing, and he has such a great heart. Uh, I hate to give him a hard time because on the competent side, I think he's doing really well. Um, I know, June, you've said that you not, you're not quite sure about his competence. I think he's doing pretty well on competence, so I give him really high marks most of the time on that. But he just can't seem to resist you know, the opportunity to commit a little bit of, you know, larceny here and there. And uh, so that's a that's a big problem. And I, I don't I, he gets he kind of gets an, a little bit of an F from me uh, uh, on that on that front. Uh, for an ethics lawyer, a little bit of an F is just, you know, <laughs> is the kindest F of all. <laughs> 
Well, Nicole, we appreciate you come here, coming here and talking ethics uh, with us. But I have one other thing I want to ask you about. As I was reading your blog, I noticed you made a very astute observation that involves Orson Welles and a 1951-52 radio show called The Lives of Harry Lyme. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I noticed that in, I think it was episode five, uh, when he was, uh, when Saul, or sorry, Jimmy was at the nursing home, um, when the when the cart filled with the jello cups gets pushed into the scene, uh, un- behind that or underscoring that scene is this music that's very, I loved the music and it was very jaunty but sort of creepy and, um, and I actually didn't, I, I didn't personally recognize it, I shazammed it and it came up as this theme, the Harry Line theme to, um, to the third man. Hello there, James McGill, attorney at law. How are you this fine morning? I'm just fine, and how about you? Very good. Play fair. Oh, what do we got here? I mean, we all know Vince Gilligan doesn't make pop culture references by accident. So I was thinking about why he would use that theme. I read a few comments about it, and, you know, the general view was that he was making a reference to Harry Lyme and... Um, Harry Lyme being a con man, so he's drawing a parallel bet- between Saul as a, sort of the con man lawyer and Harry Lyme. When I dug a little deeper, I read about this radio show. So this guy, Harry Allen Towers, was a radio producer. He learned that the Harry Lyme character had not been sold, that the rights to the character had not been sold when, um, when the movie was made. So he purchased those rights and he created a prequel, a radio series. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karras. Um, and it was voiced by Orson Welles. Um, every episode, it would say... That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man, yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. No. He had many lives. And I can tell you about all of them. How? Because my name is Harry Lyme. And I really thought that that might be the reference that Vince Gilligan was making, you know, drawing a parallel between the prequel in the radio show and Better Call Saul. And as you as you noted, it's sort of um, a little sillier in tone, a little bit more lighthearted than the Third Man. So in a lot of ways, it is kind of the Better Call Saul of its day. And in fact, I, I looked online, and you can listen to. There's like I saw like 40 episodes put up there. You can listen to them. I listened to the start of a few of them, and Orson Welles's voice is just so great and resonant that it's actually kind of worth listening to them. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for coming on with us. Very interesting, and we will continue to read your blog and your ethical observations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you guys. It was very fun. Hi, I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, Vultures TV critic. On this week's episode of the Vulture TV podcast, Vultures TV editor Gazelle Amami, Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and I are going to discuss the most shocking moment in television so far this year and the tortured existence of NBC's weirdly brilliant comedy community. You'll find the Vulture TV podcast at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. You know, 
before we finish up, Seth, I did want to, since we were just talking about a piece of music that was playing in a senior center or, you know, a movie that was on the TV, there was another movie that was playing when Jimmy first went into the Sandpiper Crossing. And because I recognized the actors who were in that scene. Well, Jimmy Stewart. Now I'm curious, what was the movie? It was Jimmy Stewart and um, Jack Lemmon. And the movie that, and uh, another actor whose name is currently escaping my uh, memory. So the movie is Book, Bell and Candle, which, whose plot, uh, as described in Wikipedia, seems to mostly revolve around a man who is bewitched and the witch then falling for him and losing her powers, which, of course, because I was just so Kim-obsessed this week, I took as a reference to Kim and Jimmy, but who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Well, there's a lot coming together here. As we know, in any one of these big prestige series, it's the, la- the last few episodes. They really turn it on. They turn yep. up the heat. And, you know, we're going to, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait until, I, th- I believe, from what I've read, 2016 before we get our next uh, season two of Better Call Saul. But there's a lot going on. We've got Mike, for instance. We haven't talked about Mike yet. So Mike uh, sees that, that Stacy's daughter-in-law is hurting a little bit financially and needs more money. And, you know, we know that Mike's soft spot always is going to be his grand daughter and he doesn't want to see his granddaughter underprivileged and so Mike is now we're seeing how he's going to be drawn into the underworld because he goes to that veterinarian uh, and he says you know um, tell me what you got and I'll tell you what I'll do and he's he's willing to uh, enter that world and and we're sort of seeing I think how he's going to end up with Gus later on right and it's because he wants to help uh, Kaylee and Stacy. That's his soft spot. It's his kryptonite. We have to just note, too, that some of the other emails that we got to podcasts at slate.com did point out that some people are not going to like to hear this, but there's a flaw in the show, which is that Kaylee seems to have been in suspended animation in terms of her age between better, you know, the six years or however many years between better, better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. I think that's just something that Vince Gilligan had to do because he needs a Kaylee age character in Better Call Saul. He needs the sort of the needy daughter-in-law. He needs Mike to have that fresh hurt. You know, you have to let some things uh, just kind of go. Judas. Judas, I How know. very dare you, June. <laughs> <laughs> June, the, uh, the producers of the Better Call Saul podcast would like to distance themselves from your statements that Vince Gilligan could ever be wrong. So okay, I just again. would like <laughs> the listeners to know that, that your opinions do not reflect the management of the show. You're on an island, June. On an yourself. island. Good luck. Can I also just defend myself around my comments about uh, Saul slash Jimmy's competence? I do know that he's competent. I can see it in every episode. What I am referring to is Saul slash Jimmy's belief in his competence. I think he's constantly being surprised. And I think he's also constantly being underestimated. So I do think that Gilligan and all the writers do want us to question whether he really is just a fast-talking guy who's smart and fast on his feet. But is he also a good lawyer? I do think we're supposed to question that. Now, I believe he has every sign that he is amazingly good at his job, but it's not as clear as some people are acting. Well, June, I'm looking forward to these next two episodes. I'm looking forward to talking to you about them. Go land crabs. On our way out, why don't we listen to some of the beautiful zither music from The Third Man and The Lives of Harry Lyme. Thanks for listening to this Slate TV Club podcast. Join us next time when we'll talk about Better Call Saul, Episode 9. And don't forget my listener challenge. What is the significance of Chuck's Code 1868? 
And check out our other recent TV podcasts about House of Cards and the Americans. In fact, check out all the great Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our producer is Joel Meyer. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Bye, Seth. Go Land Crabs. Go Land Crabs.